Luke 7. As we continue this series we're doing on hospitality, grace visiting us as outsiders. And while you turn there, I've told this story about a year ago, maybe about a year ago. Um, but it's a great story. I'm going to tell it again. All right. I, the very first time, it was like 15 years ago, was the very, very first time I was in a living room setting with other Christians. I can't remember if it was called a cell group, a life group, or whatever, home group, cell group, Bible study. I don't, they, they have so many different names. I didn't know what it was. All I knew is it was the first time I was in a living room with adults, right? I mean, I've been in like college environments, and I'm not saying that y'all aren't adults. Listen, if you're in college, we love you here. I do consider you an adult. I'm just saying this is my first time to be in a living room with people that were married and had careers and not just jobs, right? And their cars didn't break down all the time. So these were like, it's my first grown-up situation. And I'm around there, and I really wanted to be there. I was looking forward to it because there was a cute redhead in there I was courting and really chasing after, and she was in there, so I was up for anything she was into. And then there was the guy that was leading the Bible study, Um, was a real masculine dude, and I was a brand new Christian, and I wanted to learn how not just to be a man um, after God's heart, but to be a man after God's heart and really just still be a masculine guy. I mean, I kind of grew up with the idea that whenever a man became a Christian, he had to kind of not be so masculine anymore. So I saw this guy, and he's like captain of the SWAT team, ex-college athlete, and I thought, man, I'm totally excited to be around him. So we go, I'm sitting in this Bible study, I couldn't even tell you what we were studying, Paula was over here to my right, there's a guy to my left, and he starts crying, right? Not the guy leading it, it's just another dude. Starts crying, like weeping, weeping's a better word, because weeping has like whimpering in it. So he was weeping, right? And it got louder and louder, and I don't remember what the passage was, I just remember it wasn't a passage that evoked weeping, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) We were just getting started, and I felt embarrassed for this guy. I mean, I'm thinking in my mind, brother, put that in a can. I mean, there's girls here, you know. <laughs> That's not masculine what you're doing right now. I mean, I was really thinking, brother, you really got to get your stuff together. I mean, do it in the car and then come in or something, but this is distracting. And so in my mind, I was starting to judge him easily. I was starting to think he's, maybe he's not very mature. Maybe his life's a wreck. I mean, all these things were spinning. Now, What's ironic is, is here I'm in this hospitable moment. This was a time of deep hospitality, where we were welcoming each other, listening deeply to each other's lives, providing for each other, is what we defined it as last week. We're showing each other hospitality, but yet my heart was very, very, very inhospitable. It's funny how we can do that, right? Being moments of deep hospitality, and yet be very, very inhospitable, where judgment really replaces love, especially in that moment. Um, I want to repeat a definition that we found helpful last week on what hospitality is, because most of us, as we said last week, whenever you say the word hospitality, it evokes an image of people hanging out with you and eating with you, you know, the the bros coming over for wings or something, which that is a form of hospitality. But hospitality, as as Tim Chester defined it, and I found helpful, he says, hospitality involves welcoming, creating space, listening, paying attention, and providing. And that could happen anywhere right? That's the beauty of this definition. It can happen anywhere. It doesn't have to happen in your living room. You can make space and welcome people anywhere in your schedule, in your comfort zones. I mean, it could be in a restaurant. It just so happens that it really works very well in the home, and it really works very well around food, which is why we've become accustomed to thinking of hospitality as we do. So I like that. I want to look at a passage today that happened in another living room. Look in your Bible at 36, verse 36, Luke 7, 36. Jesus does something really cool in this, and he really shows us what hospitality looks like. It's very helpful for me. Do you have it up there? Good. Okay. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Okay, pause. Reclined at the table. So imagine a table where people are sitting at three sides, but the fourth side is open. That way the servants can get to it with food and drink real easily, right? And the table's about like this big, not one with chairs. They're like leaning on an arm and got their feet behind them. I don't even know how that was comfortable, but apparently that was comfortable back in the day. And they're eating like this. Y'all see me? Y'all see this? Okay. They're eating like that. So they're getting food and they're drinking and they're all hanging out kind of all staring in the same place. This was very commonly done after a rabbi would teach. They would invite the rabbi over for lunch, right? Kind of like they do with pastors today. 
and they would all sit around and talk to the rabbi and visitors. Sometimes it would happen in a courtyard where it was easy for onlookers and just passers-by to come in and kind of partake and ask questions, maybe even beg for scraps of food that were left over. That's the scene that's going on right here. And a Pharisee is the one who invited him. It wasn't just tax collectors and prostitutes that wanted Jesus around. The Pharisees, he actually had dinner with a lot of Pharisees. Right? right before this passage, he's ripping the Pharisees. Him and the Pharisees are going at it again. Right? Then he brings them into dinner. Verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Pause. This, so far, is obviously and unavoidably awkward. Think about it. Put yourself in the room. Don't read it. Put yourself right there. Right? A woman comes in, most likely a prostitute, about 98% chance she was a prostitute, right? because of the phrase that they used. Most likely a prostitute coming in, most likely looking like a prostitute. Think about what that would be today. Put yourself in the, in, right around that table. Right? Being loud, being emotional, being memorable. Right? She breaks this flask, this alabaster flask of ointment, And so it smelled the room up. Now, to a lot of people, that would have been the smell of iniquity, maybe. A lot of prostitutes would carry these flasks around, and they would use them for clients, for customers. It was a way for them to just, I guess it's it's just an industry standard back in the time, but that's the most expensive thing that she had. What other people were smelling is sin. She was smelling as, this is my deepest treasure given to you. We learn from other passages in the other Gospels that these flasks were worth about a year's salary. So you do the math. That's how much it was. She broke it and she spent it all. Approximately a year's salary. So for her, she didn't see Christ as a client. She saw him as God. and was going to pour her affection and her devotion in that moment. But think about what it would have been seen as from the rest of the room. Right? Her hair was taken down. That's not a subtle note. Her hair was taken down. For a woman to take her hair down back in that time was a very provocative thing. That's something that women only did behind closed doors with their husband, right? That would have been akin today to like uh, people running around half-dressed, right? Something that might be seen as shameful in public to a certain level, right? But it was very normal behind closed doors. It would have been a very R-rated thing to see. We miss that because it's just hair. But that's what it would have been seen as, largely, Right. Her parents looked very provocative. But listen, her actions, those look provocative too. Not just what she looked like, but what she did. I mean, there was no way anyone was missing this moment. There was no air left in the room. You know? It was the moon. There was just no air. Just that elephant in the room of what was going on. You just could not miss it. And the thing is, is Jesus allowed it. He didn't talk to her in this moment, doesn't reprove her, challenge her, tell her to pump the brakes, this isn't the right time, doesn't say stop, doesn't say can someone escort her out of here please, doesn't say all the things that everyone would have expected him to say, he just simply allows it, right? That didn't look good from everybody else's point of view. It was not a socially tolerable thing that was happening right now. In fact, it actually reinforced what everybody else had already thought about Christ, You see, right before this passage, a lot of the people, some of them might have even been at this table, were calling him a rebellious drunk. Here he comes, the one who drinks with sinners and eats with sinners. In fact, he even says himself, he says right before this passage, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So this is what they're seeing. They're seeing someone that they already think is a rebellious drunk, allowing a prostitute to do something that looks very provocative. That is what is going on here. It goes on, verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. 
And he answered, say it, teacher. Say it, teacher. Did you notice he demoted him right there? He was a prophet, now he's a teacher. No longer is Christ one who hears from God, but he's just merely one who just instructs others. Right? That's what he's doing. This is Simon saying, aha, I got him. Wait till the guys hear about this. Smoking gun. You can't possibly be a prophet and allow this to happen. So now we know he's not a prophet. He was using this as an opportunity to disqualify Christ in his own eyes. But Jesus saw his heart. Jesus saw his heart. He knew what he was thinking, and he answered that. And Jesus was always doing this, wasn't he? He would do something real cool, and he would just know what they're thinking. And he would just start talking to them as if they said it out loud. Just read their mail. So not only is he a prophet, he's the ultimate prophet. Little did Simon know at that time, right? The thing is, is he sees our heart too. He sees our heart too. Even a subtle shift, even the slightest shift of your heart, even if you don't say it with your mouth, even if you don't do it by deed, even if it doesn't come across in your facial expressions, whenever you think something, even that subtle shift, he sees it. He sees it. He recognizes it in your heart. It says this in Hebrews, for the word of God, it says, is discerning. And he goes on to say that it even judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Man, that's amazing. That's what's happening. Simon's heart towards the unsaintly woman was being exposed, right? Jesus saw at this time how Simon had viewed him and how he viewed himself. These are very important pieces of information. So Jesus takes those pieces of information and tells a story to the whole room that he would see and that the onlookers would see God better and themselves better. And this is the story. Imagine you're there because the story is for us too. The story is for you and me, right? That's why it's in the Bible. It's for us. It says this in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, don't get caught up in the amount, how much a denarii is and, and what that would have amounted to today. The point of parables is magnitude. Think of the magnitude. One is ten times the other. That's what, that's what Hebrew writing would want you to lock on to. They're trying to be obvious about the difference, the differential between the two amounts. One is ten times the other. That's what's important. So it would be like today me saying a moneylender lent a thousand and a gazillion dollars. You know, I made that up. I don't think there is such a thing. But he canceled both. Who do you think would love him more? Well, the one that owed a gazillion, I suppose. That's what's going on, right? Jesus is basically saying, who do you think would have been more aware of the debt? Who do you think would have been more aware of the forgiveness out of those two? You know, Thomas Constable, he's a commentator. He says on this passage, he says, as a rule, as a basic rule, the intensity of one's love tends to be proportionate to his understanding of the greatness of forgiveness. Think about that. The intensity of one's love tends to be proportionate to his understanding of the greatness of his forgiveness. So, Simon answers. Jesus says, you're right. You're right. You have judged correctly. And by doing that, you've exposed yourself and you've justified her. But I don't think Simon understood that. I mean, I wonder if Simon saw himself in this parable at this point. Think about it. At this point, I wonder if Simon knew that this was about him. I wonder that because it's easy for me to read it and not know it's about me. (laughs) It's easy for me to read it and wonder who it's talking to. Where am I in this? So it'd be very easy for Simon to do the very, very same thing. I think we can all do that. You know, whenever Jesus taught parables... It wasn't just so the, on, just the people that were there could hear it and go, oh, that's really good. i got a buddy that's struggling with that. I can't wait to get home and tell him, you know. Jesus wasn't coming in and training people on how to work with their friends that were really struggling with problems. He was walking into a room knowing that everybody there had a problem. That's what he was doing. Because it would be real easy for us to read this and go, ah, that's not me. In fact, that would be pretty cool if a prostitute came in and did that. Because I'm not Simon. I'm not graceless Simon. I have grace in my heart. I totally think that was cool. No, you wouldn't. Listen, you might with a prostitute, but everybody has their own version of a prostitute, right? Someone's going to walk in, and you're going to become Simon really fast. It might be a prostitute. It might not be. It might be someone that thinks they know it all, 
might be a college graduate, might be someone who's never gone to college, might be whoever it might be. Someone is going to make you, it's so easy for us to shift gears and become Simon. There's so many things that we could be prejudiced against. So many things that we can judge and become Simon. Everybody. Everybody's like that. That story, this story is for us. Because whenever we read parables, a lot of times, this is just a rabbit trail. I know I'm trying not to chase it too far. It's very easy for us to pick up the script to the wrong character. (laughs) The whole idea, you know a parable hits you right. Look at the common response from the people that heard parables all the time. It was always like they'd hear the parable and they'd go, wait a minute, wait, you're not talking to me, are you? You're talking to me? You're not talking to me. Is he talking to me? He's talking to me. You know, that hook at the end. That right turn, that moment where the mirror is just thrust in your face and you see yourself, the shock of that moment. That's why these parables were designed the way that they were. They're designed with a hook at the end. All of them are. Look at them. It's a great storytelling. Verse 44, let's go on. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, get this, this would be really cool in a movie, looking at the woman, still talking to Simon, right? Talking to Simon in the room. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Of course he saw this woman. Everybody in the room saw this woman. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. What's going on in that statement? She was the better host out of the two, and it's not even her house. She was exercising better hospitality in a house that wasn't even her own. That's what Christ is saying. These things weren't required to do to Jesus. The whole feet thing and the oil thing, that was not required. That was just something a good host would do. Like today, just getting up off the couch and going and opening up the door and shaking the person's hand. Rather than just sitting there going, it's open! It's come on in! You know? I mean, that's what we're talking about. Jesus is saying, look, You weren't a very good host to me. She's being ten times the host that you were. And it's in your house. That's what's going on right now. It's really a tale of two hospitalities. And I wonder if even at this point Simon is getting it. I still wonder if he's getting it at this point. He says this, Jesus does in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he was forgiven little, loves little. Now, Jesus is saying, what you see, Simon, is an unsaintly action is proof that she indeed is a saint. What you see is something very unsaintly is very saintly indeed. You see, her love was a response to something that Jesus had already done. At some point, and we don't have text of this, but you know that there was some point where Jesus had already wrecked her and rescued her. Her doing this was not a plea for salvation. It was a response to salvation visited. And I don't know what it was. I don't know if she saw a leper get healed and thought, man, I wonder if what happened to him physically can happen to me morally. I don't know if she saw some dead kid come to life and go, man, I've always felt dead. I wonder if I could be made to feel alive. I don't know what she saw. I don't know if he was preaching from a boat or from a plane or from a hill or preaching from somewhere and just for a minute locked eyes with her right when he said, and you will never thirst again. I have no idea at what point this happened, but there was some point where her art opened up and Christ came and saved it. Something happened. What she's doing now is responding to that. She's gushing. It's an overflow of what's going on. God had already shown her hospitality, had already made space had already welcomed her, had already listened, had already paid attention to the depth of her soul and had already provided. This had already happened. Hospitality had already been exercised. So what is she doing? She's echoing it by being a better host in someone else's house. You're seeing two hospitalities. That's what you're seeing in this story. There's two mistakes we make whenever we read this parable, and I've heard them both made a lot. One, the mistake is, people will say that she was saved because she loved him a bunch right here. As if she was doing all of this and Christ would look and say, you see what she's doing? Now she's saved. You see all this love that she's showing? Now I'm going to make her a Christian. Now she's saved. We get that because of the the wording here where it says, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much. But that's a bad rendering of that. That word for, which it it should say something a little bit closer to, which is why. She's loving me much. 
Her sins were forgiven, which is why she is loving me much. Again, her love in that moment was not a plea for forgiveness. It was a response to forgiveness that had already been visited to her. Another mistake we can make is we could read that and think, well, see, it says Simon is forgiven too, just not very much. Right? Those who love a lot were forgiven a lot. And those who don't love very much weren't forgiven for very much. And we read that and we go, well, maybe Simon was a better guy. Didn't require as much forgiveness. But the truth is, is they both had heavy, heavy, heavy debt, didn't they? They were both in debt up to their eyeballs. In fact, in this story, Simon's in a worse place than the prostitute. I mean, she might be a prostitute in body, but he was a prostitute in soul. He was a moral prostitute. And he was able to look at her and judge her when he was just as bad off in his own heart. That's what we're seeing right here. Jesus is saying, look at your posture towards me, Simon. Look at what you're doing. It's indicative of your awareness of grace and your need for it, and you don't think you need it. And it's showing in your posture towards me. But Simon, look at her, and look at her posture towards me, and it's indicative of her awareness of the grace and the receipt she has of the grace already visited her. It shows. It shows what you guys understand. Jesus says, you can tell who understands they're forgiven. By the reaction. By the reaction. Then, this is the first time in the whole parable that he actually talks to the prostitute. Then he turns to her and talks to her. And he says this in verse 48. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Something she already knew. Something she already understood, but it's something the whole room couldn't get their arms around. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He was just affirming her place in Christ at this point in front of all the skeptics, in front of all the people. These onlookers. These are the ones that thought he was a drunk glutton. Who is this that forgives sins? Are you kidding me? The drunk glutton that's letting a prostitute touch him? He's going to forgive sins? whatever. Jesus looks at her in this moment and tells her what she already knew, but what her soul always wanted to hear. I love that he did it in front of everybody. I love that he did it again for everybody, almost as to say, don't listen to their stares. Don't listen to their stares. Don't pay attention to them. You really are free. You really are safe, and you really are new. It really is true, and it's really for you. I love it that he did it, that he took the time to do that. This is a rabbit trail. Some of you have felt like this, okay? It's not the point of the preach, but some of you have felt like this woman, right? Like you don't belong in the room and that at any moment, someone's going to come and escort you out because you know something you did or because you have this stigma in your mind that you think everybody else can see, a little bit of a scarlet letter. You walk in, And you think, everybody knows this about me, and if they don't, there will be a time where they do. And whenever they do, my membership card's going to get revoked, right? And you expect to be escorted out, treated with inhospitality. Unhospitality. Did I say that right? I mean, it's common. It's a lot more common than you'd think. This is why a lot of you avoid community. Even if you go to community, you can still avoid community. Because it represents shame. It represents for you a moment where eventually they will find you out. Right? I sat in the laundromat here recently with a guy. He's got 30 years on me. And we're sitting there and he's talking about, and he had found a church in the past. And I I mean, I enjoyed this process of him getting involved in a church and watching him change. I noticed a little bit of a nosedive the last few months. Sat down and talked to him about it. Man, I just haven't been going to church. Why? Why, bro? I just, man, I've been sinning. Not living right. Why would I go? So I had that talk with him about how we are the church and how you're perfect for the church where you're at right now and had this talk. But he saw community as a point of shame. He felt a lot like this woman. I guarantee. I guarantee. So now we have a choice looking at this. I want to steer it back. Now we have a choice. Just like Simon, how are we going to hear Christ in this moment in this story that is told to us? How are we going to hear it for us? How does it lead us? 
I will tell you, for me, this story, I am Simon. Difficult people reveal my heart. Difficult people reveal my heart. They do. I'll judge and I'll form opinions totally while forgetting myself. I'll become the judge rather than realizing that I had a judge and he counted me free. You know, I too often think that God's rescue of me is easier than God's rescue of other people. Think about that. Do you ever think that about yourself? Like you helped God out? Like you were an easier project? Oh, Luke, thank you so much. I'm so glad to have you in my kingdom, Luke. As if God is saying that, you know? I mean, I mean, you're obviously a leader, and you've got your head on a swivel, and of course we all have problems, Luke, but I mean, yours are at least socially tolerable. At least you're not like her. Now, she's a project. In our minds, we think that that's how God looks at us sometimes. Boy, it's not. We were all dead bones walking. It's the same renovation project. I'm not easier. I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. I am Simon. That's the whole point of this. I can also look at others as if they have more debt in their lives than I do. So I can place myself right above them. And this is what Simon's doing right now. Hey, she's in debt up to her eyeballs, Jesus. She's a prostitute. For Christ to look at him and say, yeah, about that. You are too. All of you. You know, we have this thing, and I have preached on this before, about how we all have this view that there are black hats in the world and white hats in the world. And we're all trying to be white hats. This is the truth, folks. There are no white hats. We're all got black hats on. Jesus is the only white hat, right? This is partly what this parable is poking at, partly where Christ is leading them. I can also say that I have less need of mercy and grace than others. I can do that. And when I do all of this, I show that I don't understand the gospel very well. I don't understand the depth of the recovery that happened in my life. I don't understand God's hospitality towards me, and it's obvious that I don't understand that and have my arms totally around that by how I'm treating other people in community, by my living room moments, by my Simon moments, right? Oh, poor, poor girl, poor little prostitute, you know? Only if she was cleaner like me, making it easy on God, you know? That's Simon. That's Simon's heart. So what we have is we have two echoes here, two responses, two bounce backs from hospitality that came from God. We had one from Simon, and we have one from the woman. That's how you're supposed to see this. She was a woman of the city, but no longer. Now she was the woman of a different city, right? And we see a different response totally. It's a great picture of the gospel. Here it is. She received beautiful hospitality as a form of grace. And what does she do? She lavishes on Christ. She dotes on him. She worships him. She welcomes. She makes room. She provides. She does all of these things. Simon did not. When I look at the gospel, I see God doing these things for me. Welcoming me. Making a place for me. Not escorting me away from the table, but escorting me towards a better table. I see the very same beautiful things. And God is saying, you don't have to be uh, hospitable to other people. You get to be hospitable to other people as an echo and as an image of what I have done to you. It's a great picture. And as much as I don't want to be Simon, who I see in this, as much as I don't want to be that, I do want to be like Christ. And whenever you become a Christian and you grow, you become less like Simon and more like Christ. That's the whole idea of growth in grace, right? That's what we see. The thing is, is Christ, he came and he didn't just, I mean, think about what the woman did. She came and there was shame there and she broke a fortune. She spent a fortune. Christ came and he was shamed by all creation and he spent his life. He is the true and better version of that woman. That's what we see happening in this parable. So I want to respond like her because she's doing a very good job of imaging Jesus. I want to do that. I want to be hospitable to people who need it in front of a whole world of haters and critics. That's what I want to do. I want, to be, I want to welcome the rebellious drunks of the world. And by the way, we're all rebellious drunks, right? You might not get drunk on beer or wine. You're getting drunk on something. It's part of our flesh. That's our factory setting. We all have a proclivity to slide towards something that will intoxicate us and fascinate us. We're all rebels and we're all drunks. And I want to welcome them to a deep experience, enough to where it makes the religious world uncomfortable. I think that's good mission. 
I also think it's very good community. And that's what we see here. I want my hospitality to be uncomfortable even to people who don't believe that they need any grace. So Jesus' hospitality to us. We see something really cool here. Jesus came as hospitality. He showed us hospitality. And he launches us to do gospel-centered hospitality towards each other and towards a lost culture. I mean, he welcomed, he listened, he provided. And he himself was regarded as a a, a drunk and a glutton and a sinner. Now think about this. A lot of you have never seen this in this text. I thought it would be a great place to just throw it in really quick. Look at Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21 is a great place to see this. It's a prophetic moment in the Old Testament pointing to the new. Deuteronomy 21. This is, I'll just real quickly, the context is, this is what parents do if they have a son that is rebellious. It just is not changing his ways. Sounds extreme. Just hear it out. Deuteronomy 21, 20. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this son... Our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. You shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Listen, this is talking about Christ, believe it or not. Because even though he was no drunk or rebel, he was killed as if he was one. Jesus is the rebellious son. Jesus is, in this text, the drunken, rebellious son that was killed for you and me, even though the penalty for that sin hung around our necks because we are the drunk rebels. There was a life replacement happening. He died a death for us. We get to live a life he gave to us. He died our death. We live his life. That life replacement. There's a swap. He made himself, he made himself the drunk rebel, knowing that we all were, right? Goes on. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, that's interesting, right? His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Man, I really wish I could preach this text to the total depth that it has, but... The point I want you to see in it is that he became cursed as an ultimate act of hospitality for you and me. God welcomes us. God welcomes mankind because of the hospitality that was afforded by what Jesus did. He became cursed. He became that person on the cross for us. That is hospitality. That is how he made space for us. That is how he welcomed us. And then what he does and this is totally crazy, is he takes a bunch of redeemed, drunk rebels, and he groups them all together, and he calls them the church. (laughs) Calls them the church. I mean, what chance do we have, right? Gosh, we're all messed up, but we're redeemed, right? And we have the gospel leading us, and he seems to be pretty excited about us. He calls us his bride, right? So we have that. So this is to be our communal posture with each other. This is supposed to be our posture. We have to begin when we step into living rooms or when we step into pubs or the gym or wherever else where we're doing hospitality, where we're doing community, where we're doing mission. Wherever you do that, you have to step in with your own sin in your eyes. You have to step in understanding the grace that has come. You have to step in with your own trash in front of you, knowing what you were rescued from. You have to do this. Listen, you're not different from the person next to you. You are the person next to you. You're not less broken than they are. You're equally, we're all broken, living in the same broken landscape. We are. Same anxious hearts, the same scorching heat, the same jagged rocks, the same addicted flesh, the same depression. I mean, that is what is around you. That is what is sitting next to you. That is what is in the culture. When you carry that with you, the understanding of what you were and what you're growing out of by the grace of God, it's going to give you a deeper compassion for people. It's just going to do it. It's going to help you not look like Simon. The thing about Simon is, is we look like Simon, we don't even know we look like that. We don't even know it. We can't even smell that. We just are, right? We're rebels. And he loves us deeply. And now we get to reflect that love to each other. That's the whole idea. So it's important to say that his love towards you, on your worst day, on your worst day, this is how beautiful his love is towards you, on your worst day as a Christian, as a son or a daughter of the highest king, 
on your worst day where you kick the dog and freak out on your neighbor and freak out on your boss and freak out on your husband and freak out on your wife. And If you're doing all of that, your worst day where you go to bed and you think, this was the worst day of my entire life. I had such bad performance today. God cannot approve of you anymore or love you any more than he does on your best day. He can't. That's how deep his love goes. Your most inhospitable day, he still dump trucks his hospitality on you. That's the reality of the cross. It's the reality of grace. You don't have to do anything. You get to do everything. Right? He takes a grimy, sleazy band of drunken rebels and he makes us a big, fat family. Makes a place for us. And we get to reenact it all over and over again with each other. This is what Tim Chester says. He says, The marginal cease to be marginal when they are around a meal table. The lonely cease to be lonely. The alien ceases to be alien and strangers become friends. But living in this reality is so hard, isn't it? It is for me. It's really hard. I mean, we come out of the womb as Simon. That's how we are. God rescues us and we become former Simon, but we still want to act, think, and talk like Simon. That's how it is. It's hard. It's our normal. We don't even know we're doing it. But let me ask you, what is your version of the prostitute? Let's put some application to it. What is your version? Who is it that as soon as they step in the room, you think, ay, ay, ay. We all have some, don't we? We all have some type of person, even if you're not thinking of a specific person in mind. I know half of you probably are. You actually have a name. You'd probably be glad to raise your hand and tell us all who it is. There is at least a type of person, right? What about intimidating people? When they step in a living room or sit in the car with you or intimidating people, right? Maybe they're smarter than you. Maybe they know more than you do. Maybe they make more money than you do. Something about them intimidates you. What do you do in your mind? You might be Simon out of your mouth. You might be Simon in your heart all day though, right? Try to pull them off their high horse. Undress them a little bit so that you don't look so bad out of insecurity, Right? I mean, do you do that? Is that your version of Simon? What about sketchy people? People with a little bit of a past, right? They had some edge to them. Maybe they did some time somewhere. Maybe, maybe they've experienced some chunk of life you didn't because you grew up a little bit more sheltered. Do you try to relate to them? Do you try to all of a sudden be a big rap music fan or know somebody that knew somebody that went to jail and have to tell all those stories or something just so you can feel like you have a same amount of street cred with them? I mean, does that insecurity come out? I mean, is that your version of the prostitute that gets you acting to where you judge? What about messy people? This is it for me, by the way. I raised my hand in this category, right? Messy people. Messy people are folks that really push on my comfort. I want my comfort. I want convenience. I want to relax. And messy people rob that of me. It's come in and... They're, they're bleeding and they're in drama and they're whining and it's always about the same thing or maybe a different thing every week and you just need a mop. There's just so much bleeding going on, you know. And For me, that bothers me sometimes. I mean, it does. There's something about that that I think, man, I'm not comfortable right now and you're taking it from me. And I start judging them and becoming Simon. And it ruins community and it is anti-hospitality. It's against hospitality. It doesn't image anything that God has done for me because who's really the bleeder? I am. I'm the mess. I'm the whiner. I'm the one with all the drama. And yet I'm looking at this person as if there's something beneath me. I forget that I was not judged and I become a judge. You see what happens? We all have something, some personality great that just kind of grates on us. Back and forth. Something for all of us. Sitting in your house, you see them pull up in the car and you just take a big, deep breath. Here we go. We all have our version of the prostitute. We judge, we condemn, and we forget that our judge did not condemn us. And we might make room in our homes, we might make room on the couch and in our schedule and our checkbook, but we will not make room in our hearts, right? And there's a big difference. We become Simon. So how do we change from this? I'm going to land the plane. How do, we, how do we change this? How do we stop this? How do we move from this? The same way we change from anything. The same way, the same, I give you the, the most predictable answer every week. The same way we grow away from anything, which is to beg for God's grace and to repent from the sin. To believe on the gospel. To believe on what the gospel does. 
To call upon God's grace as someone who really, 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 really needs it and to turn away from self-righteousness as someone who doesn't need it anymore. Think about it. To call out and to fall at God's feet as someone who's totally and utterly dependent on God's grace and to turn your back on from the sin, turn your back on the sin that you don't need anymore. It's the same gospel answer. That's what we need. Because it changes us from looking like Simon to looking a whole lot more like Jesus. It shows us hospitality and it makes us hospitable. So God is the one who lifts the weight. God is the one who will change your heart. That weight's way too heavy for you to lift. God does it through the Holy Spirit. We, we see this picture in the Bible. This is the last passage we're going to look at today. It's in Exodus 30, or forgive me, Ezekiel 36. And this is a picture of the very, very first heart transplant in the Bible and all of history, I guess. And it makes one not dead anymore spiritually. And it makes them alive and responsive spiritually. That's what Ezekiel says. This is what God says through Ezekiel. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. He says, I, he lets us know who does the work like half a dozen times in here. He doesn't say anything about you doing anything. It is him. He's causing you to do something. How does that even work? He gives you the Holy Spirit. He gives you the Holy Spirit. This this occurs when you become a Christian, right? When you become a Christian, God makes you responsive. This is why at one time you cried out to God. This is what the Puritans called sight of sin. There was one moment, if you're a Christian listening to me today, there was one moment where there, you just saw your deep need and you saw his deep remedy and you called out, right? You know how that happened? You had a responsive heart. You know how that responsive heart got in your chest? The Holy Spirit did a heart transplant, took that heart of stone out and put a responsive heart in, a living heart in, to where you could finally go, oh my gosh, and then look at Christ and go, oh my gosh. Look at he's done. We call that regeneration. That's what the Bible calls regeneration. You see, our hearts, however, they're still wicked. We still have the stain of Adam on us, so we slide. And we continually need the gospel to change us. We're regenerated once. We're renewed every day. We're regenerated once as Christians. We're renewed every single day. Just as, just as we see in the New Testament, man, as my outer self, as it just starts wasting away and the skin falls off my bones, I'm getting older and older and older, yet, yet, inwardly I'm renewed daily, day by day by day. We continually need this gospel because we will slide back. Without God's, listen, without God's hand on my life, I'm going to be Simon every single day to you, to my wife, to my kids, to everybody, except for that Holy Spirit changed me. We, we all become that. So, God's community, us as a church, we become a people of the life and death experience. You know, I grew up doing food service. I was always in some restaurant to some degree. That's how I made my money from high school all the way up through college. And the one thing I noticed, it doesn't really matter what kind of restaurant you're in, you will always have war vets come. Same time. Same day, same table, every week. Telling the same stories, laughing at the same jokes, sharing life. That's their church, man. I mean, that's community for those guys. Why can they be so tied together all the time? Because they shared a life and death experience. They shared an experience that was so deep and so radical that it just knit them together. It always astonished me. Even before I was a Christian, I'd look at that and go, man, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I like that. But we too have a life and death experience that we celebrate together. There was a death that was died for us. There was a death that happened in our stead and life that was given to us. There is a death we celebrate and we become those people. And I'll tell you, we become a much better looking people, much better acting people, and a much more celebrated people whenever we're able to carry God's grace and what he has done to each other. Because this is what it does. It helps me whenever I see you and you start bleeding on me a little bit. And listen, you should do that because I'm a pastor. Not, not just because I'm a pastor, but let's check that, because I'm a Christian. You should bleed on me. You should tell me your drama. I need to know that. I want to know that. Because I'm called to love you. Right? 
I need this to work in my life. I need Christ to do something radical through his Holy Spirit, just like you do, so I could do community well. Forget just so that Luke could be a better pastor, just so I could be a better Christian. We all need that. Communion. This is a lot of reason we do the communion, and here pretty soon we'll do that. We have two tables, and as soon as we all stand and worship, and the team is leading us, and the music's going, communion is a beautiful echo of God's hospitality to us. It's a beautiful echo. Last week we called it the table under the tree, the same tree we just read about in Deuteronomy. The same table under the cross where we celebrate, even with each other, grace has visited us and made us friends when we were once enemies so we can celebrate grace to each other where we once were enemies and now we are friends. Or if you're taking it with your family or your roommate just to celebrate what God has done, how that carries grace further, one step further into each other's life. It's beautiful. It's this sacrament of forgiveness where we take the former prostitutes and the former Simons and we all come together and we say we're a beautiful body, wonderfully bought and rescued by Christ. Now, as I finish, some of you, and this is my challenge, there's three groups I want to challenge and then I'm done. Some of you have been really judging people in community and you have been Simon. Some of you do this. Most of you have done this. I'm with you. Some of you have really been guilty of judging people judging personality types, judging even groups of people in community. You might have even opened your heart. You might have even opened your schedule, but you have failed to open your heart. You failed to understand what the gospel has really done. So what I would submit to you is that you need to revisit the gospel. Revisit the gospel. Meditate. Pray. Read. And then meditate some more on the depth of, of the recovery effort that was exercised for you. You are Simon. And you're sitting around a bunch of Simons. Right? Some of you feel judged by the stares. Even, and this is typically what I've found from people that have a stigma from something in the past. Maybe they've done something, had something done to them. It's amazing how many times they really, really, really believe that everybody knows and is judging them when pretty much no one even knows what's going on. They just feel it when it's almost not even there, right? It's just how it's always been. So some of you walk in and you feel judged. You feel like, man, it's just a matter of time before they find out about me. It's just a matter of time. And you feel really uncomfortable, real unsettled, almost like you can't let down. There's a piece of you that wants to let down, though. There's a piece of you that really, really has a hunger and a taste for community and for relationship regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you were. There's a part of you that really is almost enchanted by the idea of letting down. But there's another part of you that won't dare do it. You simply won't do it because you think as soon as it comes out of your mouth, what you've done, as soon as they find out what you've done, you're gone, you're out of here. Hospitality stops. Hospitality stops. You've been given your walking papers, right? It's almost like you are that prostitute and you can feel everybody's stares. So listen to Christ speak to you as Christ spoke to her. You are forgiven. You're no longer a woman of the city. You're a woman of a new city. And that can't be taken away from you. Their stares, their words, their deeds, they can't remove what I've put in force for you. But Luke, what if I do say something? What if I do start to get real with people, and they abuse me. What if that happens? Hey, don't say what if. Say just it's a matter of when. It will happen. It will happen. It will happen. But listen. Listen, we cannot live a life where we will not open up our lives to other people just in case they might refuse you. You will be refused. You will be rejected. Hopefully, hopefully that doesn't happen. I'm just saying, over life, that will happen. Over life, someone will. Someone won't be mature enough for what you're going to say to them. You think that they will be, and you'll say it, and you'll find out real quickly they're not. They could not hold that. They didn't have the capacity for what I was about to say. And now, that, now it's all weird between us now. That will happen. Understand it was kind of weird with Jesus, too, whenever he let down, and, and he was rejected, and he was put upon, and he was hung on a cross. If anyone gets that, it's the Lord that you pray to, Right? I'm not saying community is easy. I will say it comes with a deep price tag, right? I've been rejected. I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you feel like. But Jesus does not escort you out of community, away from the table. He escorts you towards a better table, right? You have to remember that. Listen, some of you, 
You are not sure what to think. You don't really feel like Simon. You don't get that vibe. You don't really feel like the prostitute. You don't get that vibe, and you're not able to find yourself in this story at all, right? You're looking at it, and you're like, yeah, I don't really get it. I don't even know what it has to do with me. Listen to Jesus when he says this. Whoever loves much is forgiven much. Hear that phrase in this whole thing if you have a hard time seeing anything else. He who loves much is forgiven much. Why, Luke? Why that phrase? Listen, if you have no love in your heart, I'm talking to you if you're not accustomed to Christianity, maybe you bumped into it in the past, maybe it's always kind of been a fog and you can't kind of really figure out where you're at in the whole thing. If you have no love in your heart, no responsivity in your heart, if you have no appreciation, if you have no thanksgiving at all and there's no tears ever provoked, there's nothing that just provokes worship and thanksgiving and love for God, I might submit that your heart's not responsive. I might submit to you that you might not be saved. But Luke, you can't know that. You can't know a person's heart. You're right, I can't know a person's heart, but I never met a dead man that was raised to life when he should have been left for dead, not respond, not say thanks, not have some thanksgiving or some level of love or worship. Some of you, you've actually, you know what I'm talking about. You've always wondered if you're a Christian. You kind of thought you were, but you can't, quite figure out why everybody else loves Jesus so much and you just don't. I've heard it from people. Luke, I just don't love Jesus. I just don't care about him. You might not be saved. I know I'm sticking it out there. It might not be the case. Might be. Maybe, maybe there's just something else going on and we can get to the bottom of that. The reason I'm talking to you as a group because I want you to know you can call on God. Call on his grace as someone who needs it desperately and then turn from your life as a sinner as someone who needs it no longer and God will visit you. God will bring salvation upon your head and you will live that life. Now listen, so if you're confused and you did something at church camp a long time ago but you don't know if it sticks or you know if you prayed the right thing or maybe someone prayed it for you and now you don't know if it works or you know how the enemy is. That's what the enemy will do. Well, you didn't say it right or he said more than you did, or you were too young, or you didn't understand, or you've lived too bad since then. And so now everything's just a big ball of confusion, and you can't figure out where you're at with God. If that's you, and I say this every week, I implore you, you should talk to one of us before you leave. Don't leave and be confused another week or two or a year or whenever it is before you come back to church or go to church or listen to something on iTunes or whatever. Get that resolved now. Talk to somebody now. We'll have people in the back. Kevin will be in the back. I'll be in the back. Find us in the back. Find us after the service. 